From the Rocky Mountains to the Himalayas, Earth's highest mountains are beautiful and wondrous to behold. But what kind of powerful force could have formed such majestic and rugged terrain? The events that caused it to happen rapidly occurred in the past when things were going much faster. This is Science, Scripture and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. The Earth's crust is broken up into several large patches or plates. Sometime in the past, different plates collided with each other and formed high mountains and deep ocean trenches. But were these grand mountains formed millions of years ago as the plates slowly crunched together? Or did these plates move at much higher speeds only 4,500 years ago during the worldwide catastrophe known as Noah's Flood? Please join us for the next 15 minutes as we explain plate tectonics and discuss the powerful processes that formed our mountains. So what do we mean by the term plate tectonics? ICR geologist Dr. Andrew Snelling gives us the details. Tectonics basically means earth movements. You know, when you have earthquakes, when the ground moves. Well, if we look at mountains, for example, the Himalayas, Mount Everest, there are seashells at the top of Mount Everest. That means that sediments, rock layers that were deposited on the bottom of the ocean had to be moved up above sea level. So there had to be earth movements to build mountains. So that's what the word tectonics means. As a result of earth movements, the earth's outer skin or crust has broken up into smaller pieces. And those smaller pieces we call plates. So plate tectonics is the description of how those broken pieces of the Earth's outer skin or crust have moved around and interacted with one another to accomplish certain geological processes and products. ICR geophysicist Dr. John Baumgartner is the creator of a computerized model of plate tectonic movements. Plate tectonics has to do with the uh, interactions of these plates with one another and the motions of the plates and the creation and destruction of some of the plates at their edges. And so uh, it happens that it's mainly at the boundaries of the plates that most of the uh, exciting geological activities today take place. It's at the edges of the plates that most earthquakes occur as one plate moves relative to another plate. It's also generally where most of the volcanoes take place, where one plate is thrusting beneath another plate. We talked earlier of high mountains being formed by plate tectonics, but just how did this happen? Well, Dr. Baumgartner says the world's magnificent towering mountain ranges formed because of plate subduction. That's when there is a collision of plates and one plate is pushed underneath the other. In general, the high mountains we have today are a direct result of this tectonic catastrophe that took place to cause the flood. And most of the high mountains are near plate boundaries. And a good example is the Andes Range in South America. In order to form such incredible mountain ranges, plate subduction would have to be a dramatic and powerful geologic process. We have the ocean plate subducting, plunging down into the earth from west to east under the Andes. There are several sources for the material that form the Andes. 
an important component is volcanic material, magmatic material. It turns out when a plate plunges down into the earth, it carries down with it some water and some sediment in addition to a layer of ocean crust on top of the plate. And when this material gets down to uh, roughly 80 to 90 miles below the surface, the temperatures get hot enough to start melting that rock. It turns out that the water lowers the melting temperature of the rock, makes it easier to melt. And so one can get large amounts of melting and magma produced, and it comes up as big bubbles toward the surface. So much of the mass of the Andes is this kind of volcanic rock that has melted as a result of the plate plunging down into the earth beneath that mountain range. And the different processes of plate subduction formed different sorts of mountain ranges. There's also a tendency for this ocean plate to uh, scrunch up, if you will, compress the edge of the continent. And so some of the thickening that these mountain belts represent, thickening of the light continental crust, is a result of that process. So the subducting plate can move some of the lower crust around. And uh, in some cases, it's moved around enough to thicken it in some places. And then when these plate forces go away, that thickened crust bobs up like a buoyant cork and produces a mountain range. And that's what's happened in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, for example. ICR geologist Dr. Steve Austin. The seafloor plate subduction or pushing underneath the North American continent would create these mountains and this terrain. It would depress the ocean floor and create a great trench where sediments could accumulate. And, of course, along the western edge of North America, we see great thicknesses of sediments that have accumulated all the way from Alaska down into Mexico. Enormous thicknesses, tens of miles thickness maybe. And then as we think about this collision as it may have occurred, we also think about the unusual rocks that may have been delivered to the western edge of North America as the Pacific Ocean floor and the North American continent came together. Rocks on the Pacific Ocean floor could be delivered and accreted or attached to the edge of North America. Both evolutionary and creation scientists understand that plate tectonics are responsible for the Earth's lofty mountain grandeurs, but sharply disagree as to the time scale of such formations. Because the Earth's plates move very slowly today, at approximately one inch per year, evolutionists believe that they've always progressed at such a slow pace. The belief that things proceed today the same as they did in the past is known as uniformitarianism. But Dr. Baumgartner explains how plate tectonics in the past operated at catastrophic speeds. Instead of this process unfolding over 500 some odd million years, as the uniformitarians understand it, in reality it unfolded in just a few weeks' time as a result of catastrophic sinking of the ocean slabs into the interior of the Earth. And the motions that we see today basically are a tiny fraction of what they were during this catastrophe, roughly one billion times slower today than they were during the height of this catastrophe. Whereas the uniformitarian uses the present to interpret the past, 
interprets the past in terms of the very slow rates that we see today, and uh, that strengthens his conviction that the time scale is close to a billion times longer. So uh, it's very much tied up in the assumptions. The uniformitarian takes his cues from the present-day world, looks at the rates in the present-day world, and extrapolates them in some ways mindlessly back into the past, as if one can believe that kind of billion-fold extrapolation as far as time is concerned from the present world back into the past. Dr. Snelling agrees that plate tectonic activity in the past was catastrophic and says it would have been impossible to produce the Earth's massive mountain ranges at slow evolutionary speeds. This is what is exciting to me as a geologist who believes that God's word is true. The conventional geologists say these processes took place over millions and millions of years. But I think to myself, wait a minute. They argue that the Himalayas, Mount Everest, formed as a result of, they say it was the slow collision of the Indian plate hitting the Asian plate. Well, I like to think of it this way. If it was slow and gradual, it's like two cars travelling each at one mile per hour and colliding with one another. I mean, you barely get a scratch on the fender when you hit one another at one mile per hour. But if each car was travelling at 100 miles per hour and they collided, bang, you get an awful tangled mess. So what do we see in the Himalayas? We see a tangled mess where all these rock strata have been folded and tangled and rock layers with seashells that were formed on the ocean floor have been pushed up seven miles. So it had to happen catastrophically. The plates had to collide into one another at tremendous speed, but they're not travelling at that speed today. That means the events that caused it to happen rapidly occurred in the past when things were going much faster. And the Bible speaks about such an event called the flood. As a matter of fact, the earth's plates were formed as a result of the great flood. In the day of Noah, there was a year-long event called the flood, only four and a half, five thousand years ago, and we're told it began when the fountains of the great deep broke open. What does that mean? It means that the earth's outer skin cracked, and when it cracked all around the earth, what did it do? It produced plates. And then... As molten rock came up with steam, the fountains of the great deep, these plates began to move around, just as the geologists described, but not over millions of years, very, very rapidly. It would be difficult to picture the utter devastation that took place during the flood as these plates broke apart and swiftly collided. The movements that we recognize today, I mean, think about it. You get several feet of movement on the San Andreas Fault here in Southern California, and it brings freeways crashing to the ground. You imagine what it would be like when the faults were moving hundreds of miles, the devastation. But that's exactly what the Bible talks about during the flood, absolute devastation. When the whole earth's surface was destroyed, the world that existed before the flood was destroyed, all the people were washed away, the animals were washed away, new rock strata were formed, mountains were pushed up, and all happened catastrophically. The evidence fits with that as an accurate description of what happened during Noah's flood.
Dr. Snelling reminds us that the flood was God's judgment on a wicked and perverse world during Noah's day, and he cautions that we need to prepare for God's future judgment on the world. We need to heed the warnings and accept the ark of salvation that he's offered, which is now Jesus Christ. And so God will get to the point where the time of waiting will be finished, and just like he shut the door of the ark, he's going to say, Time's up, everybody. I'm coming in judgment. So the warning is that we each now should accept his offer of salvation and get on board before it's too late. And that means we have to acknowledge that God is the creator, accept what Jesus Christ did for us in providing a way of escape from God's judgment. When he died on the cross, he accepted our punishment for our failure, our rebellion. And he says, come to me and I will put you in right relationship with God and you'll be saved from the judgment to come. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.